Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. Are you guys applauding for Neil? Yeah, great job. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and whether you've chosen to gather right here on our campus with us or you're gathering with us online, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Sunridge. As if you're, you know, you've been at Sunridge 20 plus years, or you know, you're our, you're our guest today. We're really thrilled that you've chosen to be with us today as we look at the scriptures. Uh, I want. I have a question. Um, are Avery and Amy Moore in here today? Where are they? That way. That way. Would you guys stand up? So a lot of you don't know Avery and Amy, but they, they're moving. He's a Marine. He was going on to another career. And they have been so important to our church over the past few years. Amy has led MOPS, and, uh, which is no small task. And um, she also was an interim uh, children's director while Haley was off on maternity leave. And Avery has just jumped in in every place that he possibly can with students and all kinds of ways. And I just wanted to say to you guys that we're going to miss you. You've been so important to us. And uh, this will always be your home, except that you're moving to Ventura and it's a lot cooler and you're near the beach there. So good for you. We love you guys and we're going to miss you. Thank you so much for everything you've done for Sunday. And while I'm pointing out celebrities, I see uh, John and Julie are here back from Colorado, too. So anyway, anybody else uh, come back or like you, you, want, you want me to point you out and embarrass you right now? Okay, great. So another question for you guys. Have you ever like had a time in your life where you thought you found a solution to a problem, but once you fixed things, you uh, realized that your solution only made the problem worse? Anybody ever done that? Okay. So I think that that is what probably uh, the authorities in Florence, Oregon, in 1970 must have been thinking. Because a 45-foot, 8-ton whale had died, and it had drifted ashore, and it was just laying on one of their beaches. And so their solution to this problem was to blow this whale up. And, um, you know, they were thinking the pieces will be small enough that they'll just kind of dissipate, float away, seagulls are eat it, or other critters. And uh, so they packed that whale carcass with a half a ton of dynamite, and they detonated it. Now, I have a video. So, like, if you're going to be nervous about this, the sound's going to be on, but... If you want to close your eyes, you can. It's about a minute-long video, and I just want you to see how they solved this problem. Okay, so let's roll the tape. It had to be said, the Oregon State Highway Division not only had a whale of a problem on its hands, it had a stinking whale of a problem. What to do with one 45-foot, 8-ton whale dead on arrival? 
on the beach near Florence. Did you get a worm? Did you get a worm? Covering your eyes. Our camera stopped rolling immediately after the blast. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival as huge chunks of whale blubber fell everywhere. Pieces of meat passed high over our heads while others were falling at our feet. The dunes were rapidly evacuated as spectators escaped both the falling debris and the overwhelming smell. A parked car over a quarter of a mile from the blast site was the target of one large chunk. The passenger compartment literally smashed. Fortunately, no human was hit as badly as the car. However, everyone on the scene was covered with small particles of dead. That was a bad day. Bad idea, too, right? So, you know, it's important to say that no humans were hurt uh, in this uh, debacle, but they were showered with whale guts. And uh, people had to scatter, not just because of the debris, but the horrible smell. So you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the Bible today? So I'm really glad that you asked that question, because we're in this study of this, what is the only biblical history of the early church. It's called the Book of Acts. It follows the first four books in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, story of Jesus and his life, and now the story of the church for the first 30 years. And what we said is it's more than a history. It's, it's, it's our history. If you're a Christian today and you're part of a church, this is our beginning. These are our people and this is our heritage. And today we come to chapter 8. And these uh, folks in the first century, they were called followers of the new life. They didn't even know what to call Christians at that time. And they become increasingly bothersome to religious communities and to the Roman authorities. And so, in conjunction, the authorities and uh, Jewish leaders felt that the best solution to this problem was to turn up the intensity against these Christian believers. And they, they warned them, and if you've been with us through the first few chapters, you know that they received beatings, and then eventually there was full-scale persecution, and just like this first part of what Neil read today is referring to Stephen, the first Christian martyr, where they persecuted him, they, they murdered him uh, by stoning him. And this was their idea that would solve the problem of these pesky Christians. But we will see it had the same effect as blowing up a whale, and that it only made the problem worse. In verse 4 of Acts 8, Luke says that those who, scatter, who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So persecution only spread the problem. Now are you vibing with me? So, like, some of you are like, you know, that guy needs counseling right now. But some of you are like, man, I just totally can connect to that illustration, Britt. What happened with these early Christians is, um, it is exactly what Jesus had promised, what he had commanded his early followers to do. In Acts 1.8, we keep referring back to this, he said, while they were waiting... To, to get the go sign from God, uh, he said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Only, I think we could probably all agree, I don't think anybody was thinking that this is how it would come about, right? And if you remember, um, the, the first Christians that we see are virtually all, they all come from the Jewish tradition. And they've all been like centered in this religious community uh, in Jerusalem. But all the things that are being done to Christians, uh, and, and, you know, like it, reach a, it reaches a pinnacle when Stephen is murdered, it generates so much fear that these people scatter. They are uh, running for their lives, but they are taking the gospel with them. And th so this is like a major shift, and not just the, in the, the narrative of Acts, but also in what Jesus had promised. And in that shift, Luke reveals um, a couple of key people, and one of them that was part of this shift, one of the people that was scattered in this persecution uh, from Jerusalem is Philip. And that's like, that's in your notes. He's one of, if you, if you can remember everything, I keep saying remember, you're like, hey, I don't remember anything you said, Britt. But if you do, he was one of the seven deacons originally chosen to oversee the ministry to widows. That was in Acts chapter 6. And as often is the case with God, people that he chooses to use start out in really simple ways. God doesn't start with Christian celebrities. Stephen is proven by serving in this kind of like behind-the-scenes ministry, taking care of people. But now he's obviously stepped into a bigger role. And this is God, I think, increasing what he wants from, from uh, Philip <clears throat> and what he's capable of doing. And so uh, just as important as to who Philip was is where he goes. In verse 5 of Acts 8, he goes down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, Luke, Luke is the writer of Acts as well as, the, as Luke's gospel, and so he doesn't tell us what city this is in, and even though he describes it as down from Jerusalem, it, because it's down in elevation, it's north that he goes. Samaria is north of Jerusalem, and because that region is called Samaria, what do you think the people that live there are called? Samaritans, right. So, and this is in your notes too. Uh, these are probably descendants, the Samaritans, of the Jews from the northern kingdom who intermarried with foreign tribes. And though their religion was based on the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jews regarded them as not quite Gentiles, not, not, not completely that awful, but part of what they referred to as the lost sheep of Israel. And the way you can interpret lost sheep of Israel is they're calling them liberal basically. And as the Jewish people were scattered, as Babylon came in and took um, the Jews captive, <clears throat> they're no longer a sect of religion that just like lives in one area. So as they scatter, they, they kind of become enmeshed in different cultures and have different experiences. So just that separation geographically puts them in different places. And so even though they, sh they share the same religion, at this point in the first century, they have very different views. So, and there's no love lost through those differences. Remember in Luke, or in John 4, 
when Jesus goes to the well and he talks to the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan, and the disciples are like, they're surprised that he would even do this. That, that's how they feel about the Samaritans. Traditional Jews do not interact with Samaritans. And there are even, in, in this time period, there are, act, there are incidences of violence between the Jews and the Samaritans. Think like um, the Troubles in Ireland from 1960 through the 90s, where Protestant and Catholic, same religion, right, were warring against each other. It wasn't just the things that they believed, but like, it was like a whole package of their views of politics and their nation and values and laws. That's what the Jews and the Samaritans are experiencing in their differences. So this step by Philip to go um, <clears throat> to the Samaritans um, is really unusual given the bad feelings that would be between him, a traditional Jew, and these people that he goes to share the gospel with. So it's way out of his comfort zone, and it, it shows a little bit about who he has become, that he has this passion to see that people who are so different than him are able to hear the gospel. And his preaching, Luke says, is accompanied by uh, miracles, and that seems to be a key factor in what happens in Samaria and their openness to his message. In verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So Philip is having this powerful ministry, and people are really like locked on to what he's saying. And Luke reveals that among Samaritans um, being converted, there are two other individuals that are converted that Luke kind of like especially highlights. One is Simon, not Simon Peter, but this Simon is, he's known as a miracle worker, and he's kind of a charlatan. Um, and he has a great following in the region of Samaria. Now, here's a little resume that Luke gives us of this Simon in verse 9. He says, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery. That's what they call it, all these magics. He must be doing tricks or miracles or whatever in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. And he boasted that he was someone great. You gotta love that, right? And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. So he must have been at least helping people. He's wowing people because Luke says he has this great following. So if he were living today, he would have, you know, millions of followers on Instagram and his TikTok would be blown up right now. That's like, that's humor. You guys with me? Okay, so Simon, um, with all the other Samaritans, uh, he responds to Philip's message, verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Samaritans. And then Simon is like pulled out and highlighted. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. He was astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So couple details here I want to point out. Number one, in the first century, people are responding to the gospel by believing and being baptized. And you know, like baptism is one of those things that come forward 
to our generation 2,000 years later, and it's still practiced. And it seems weird to us, but it, this is the way in the first century that people identified with the religious group. And so they were, they were immediately being baptized, and I want to let you know that on August 7th, we're going to be doing a baptism. So if, you have, if you've never been baptized as a Christian and you want to take that step, um, you can contact Pam Dvorak, who is retired from our women's ministry, but is, she loves to help people find their way in baptism. And you can, she's pdvorak at sundrichchurch.org, or you can just go to our website. Now, as it happens, Simon, he doesn't fully grasp all the realities of this new faith, this belief in Jesus. And so... Um, when this, uh, this remarkable response is heard of in Jerusalem by the Christians there, um, they send Peter and John to help because this is a strategic moment. So they're sent to help disciple, and they want to check out what is happening, and so they're going to teach all these new converts that are coming into Christianity. Just think, it's like there's, there's no Bible, no New Testament. They've got to like help them understand all of the faith that they have embraced. And when all of these miracles are happening through Peter and John and by Philip, then uh, that triggers something in Simon from his old life. Oftentimes we, we see faith through the life that we had before, and we make connections. And, and those connections aren't always accurate or doctrinally sound. And in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Because this is what he's done before, right? And he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So he's not putting all the pieces together right. And so Peter rebukes him in verse 20. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And then it seems like Simon gets it. At this point, he's repentant. In verse 24, Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have just said may happen to me. We should do more of that in church. You know, the teacher should be able to proclaim these things, and it should scare the living daylights out of everybody listening. You know, that's a joke, you guys. Come on. So um, after this, like when all this initial discipleship is um, accomplished, Peter and John go back to Jerusalem. But Luke says that when they went, they stop in villages in Samaria, and they preach the gospel. And that's especially poignant because um, John, uh, Luke told us in his gospel in chapter 9, that John was one of the disciples that wanted to call down fire and destruction on the area of Samaria because they rejected Jesus. And so here he is now in that region giving the gospel. That has to be such a remarkable change of his mind. So, you still with me? Wave at me. Okay. All right. Do you see how Jesus's command or his promise or his prediction is actually being fulfilled? The gospel has gone to Samaria, only Jerusalem at first, and now it's gone north to Samaria. And, it, and right after that, Philip is sent on another assignment perhaps even more out of his comfort zone. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south. So he's north of Jerusalem, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
So Jerusalem uh, leads to Gaza, and that is the road that eventually leads down into Africa and Egypt. And it's an angel that tells him to do this. So don't, don't get all like, you know, freaked out about that. Either way, I want you to see that he is heading south of Jerusalem, which if you had a map right here and you could see it, that is Judea. And it's remarkable how willing and adventurous Philip is to do this without any detail that Luke gives us. So verse 27, he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So who is this second person, this in, the second individual that Luke brings out, who uh, Philip talks to? This is the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, I like to call him the chief financial officer for the queen of Ethiopia. That feels a little better to me. I don't know about you. So obviously he's from Ethiopia, and he's conducting business in Jerusalem for the queen in Ethiopia. And Luke describes him as a eunuch, which, yeah, that's exactly what you think it means. And, uh, but that was common in the first century in the Near East for men who had positions of state. And it was actually, uh, believe it or not, it was, it was um, considered an honor to, uh, to be in this state because you were unencumbered by um, all the complications that come from sexual desire, and you could be wholly focused on career and purpose. Now, who's not glad that we're not doing that anymore? <laughs> yeah, me too. So, but as the CFO for the queen in Ethiopia, he, he's, he's a very prestigious and important person. And Ethiopia is very far south from Palestine. And in fact, in their minds, this region would be called, referred to as the ends of the earth. And what is he doing? As he's come up to Jerusalem to do this business, what is he doing as he leaves? He's driving home from Jerusalem, and he's going to go through Gaza in his chariot, and he's listening to a book on tape. <laughs> Actually, it, Luke says that on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And often in the first century, um, people read out loud when they read. And he is reading one, for what became for the church one of their favorite go-tos. Like this is a passage that's called a messianic um, passage that you know, takes what the prophet Isaiah says and like it's embodied by Jesus, they believed. And as this is going on, Philip feels this nudge. Verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And so Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet, because he's reading out loud, right? And uh, this is, um, <clears throat> so Philip begins a conversation with him as he overhears this about spiritual matters and asking him, do you understand the passage? He says, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, the CFO says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Because he's like, he's from Ethiopia. He's not that familiar with these things. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
And for, if you put yourself in Philip's shoes, this would be, um, it would take some courage to step up into this man's uh, world in his chariot uh, because he's a man of high stature. This is a very, very important person. And if you were there, you'd be in awe of this person. And uh, this CFO says that he would love some help in understanding what he's reading. And in verse 35, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So what you should know about Philip, eventually in the Bible, he's called an evangelist, which is someone who is gifted at just telling people about Jesus. You, know, you probably know people like that. You know people that's like, they, you, you feel like all tight when you start to talk about God, but like he's one of those people that just flows out of him. He can do it really good. And he shares, he starts from where this man is, begins with where he's starting from, and uh, he answers his questions, and he unpacks the story of Jesus to him. And um, the Ethiopian eunuch responds to uh, what Philip is telling him, and uh, he wants to be baptized. And in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So this man is said to believe right then and there when he has a conversation with Philip. He is baptized. And then it says, he goes on his way rejoicing. So I want you to think about this. One of the first non-Jewish converts that we find in, in the church's history is a black man from Africa. This is super unusual. But as we read through that, did you notice anything missing? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, because we're all reading from the NIV. If you're reading from the King James Version of the Bible, you'll see that verse 37 is not in there. When, when, um, when, uh, the man at, when the Ethiopian eunuch asked, what can stand in my way of being baptized, in verse 37, the King James Version adds this verse. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And then he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what's going on here? I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but if you go back in our archives of our messages, we did a series on the Bible called Breakthrough. And one of those messages, we just talk about like how the Bible comes forward to us. And uh, what you should know is like there's a couple of instances in your New Testament, this is one of them, where the oldest manuscripts don't have something in it that the newer manuscripts have. And uh, this is one of those rare occurrences where a scribe um, seems to take a little liberty to help explain what is happening. And maybe a footnote turns into uh, a verse. And uh, to just totally simplify the debate, um, the the question here is, we we have tens of thousands of copies of Scripture you know, or pieces of Scripture. But the oldest versions, which do you believe is going to be more reliable in these very rare cases? Is it the oldest version with the view that over time there might be some changes? Or from the 
from the King James translation, it's translated from what's called the majority text. We have the most copies that the, from which the King James Bible is taken from. So you probably have an opinion on that. Scholars do. But every, every Bible, every modern Bible that is translated into English today is being translated from the oldest manuscripts. So that was a little footnote. Um, if you want more, go back to um, Breakthrough. So as we wrap this up, we don't hear any more about this Ethiopian, but uh, Irenaeus of the 2nd century says that he became a missionary to Ethiopia. And Philip from here makes his way north to Caesarea, uh, preaching and with his four daughters who are called prophetesses. So that's where we cut it off. And what we've been doing as we go through uh, these large sections of Scripture is to kind of like stop and go, okay, how do we bridge this? How do we bring it into our world? Um, we've said that Acts is a biblical history, but it's more than that. It's a story of our people. It's, a, it's our history. So what can we learn? Here's the main thought I want to share with you today that comes from chapter 8. The gospel transcends the divide of location, culture, politics, race, and religion. The gospel transcends the divide of location, culture, politics, race, and religion. And by the way, any other obstacle that you can think of. I think it's noteworthy here to see that Philip shares the gospel with people who are very different from him, and they're very different from each other. And he, would have, he would have viewed the Samaritans as uncouth, unworthy in their religion, and religious and political enemies. He would have viewed Simon as this craven charlatan that was just taking advantage of people. And he would have been intimidated by this wealthy foreigner, a CFO, of a, of a queen of Ethiopia. So all these differences. And prior to this moment, a person like Philip, as a self-respecting traditional Jew, would never think of speaking to these people. But this is the second expansion of the gospel that was promised by Jesus. Remember, they were told to wait. I'm going to put the verse up there again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem. Philip extends it to Samaria north and then to Judea south. And as the Ethiopian returns home, he is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So it begs the question, who is beyond hope from the gospel? Who is not worthy in my mind or your mind? Who is too far away that it would just not be wise to go there? And who thinks so differently from us as a 2022 Christian that it's impossible for me to even imagine that they could respond to the truth of the gospel? And what I think we see in this chapter is no one is too far. No one is beyond hope. And the only thing that bars the good news from touching a person is often us, Christians. Our assumptions, our prejudices, our, our comfort and our conveniences, the things that we're afraid of, our anxieties, 
And if any of those keep you from being bold in your faith, not, not a weirdo, I'm not telling you to be a weirdo, but to be bold in your faith, I want to remind you that, the, that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us to be witnesses in these places and with these people that we can never imagine ourselves to be. That is the Holy Spirit's work in us. So do you think that when Philip, um, sometimes I mess up my words, do you think as Philip went to preach, um, especially when he considers the past rejections of Samaria, that I'm sure he's aware of, do you think he's optimistic when he goes there and shares Jesus with these Samaritans? Don't you wonder what his first impression is of Simon as he kind of shows up and starts following him? Or do you think that he had any insecurities in himself, like when, you know, God is nudging him toward to go talk to this very powerful and wealthy official? If it was me, you know, like, I'd be full of all kinds of anxiety. And I'd be thinking, you know, God, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, God. Like, I'm thinking you're telling me to do that, but that just seems like a big waste of time. So let, let's, let's find an easier goal for us to reach. So here's a few thoughts that I think go with the idea that the, that the gospel transcends every barrier and makes it possible. Number one, sometimes the most painful and scary times that we experience open the biggest doors for us. Remember that it was the persecution that sent these Christians out, right? And um, that sent them out of the comfort zone. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, what did they do? As they scattered, they preached the word wherever they went. Don't you think that they were scared for their safety, for their loved ones? Don't you think it would have been socially uncomfortable, uncomfortable for Philip to take the gospel to an uncouth and filthy Samaritan? Or don't you think it would be intimidating to talk to this really powerful individual? This is a really tumultuous time in the life of someone who's a Christian in the first century. But it seems like in all the pain and all the discomfort and all the anxiety they have, this is something that God uses to open up doors for them. You know, sometimes our thinking is it's logical, but it's not the way God wants us to think. Sometimes we think, well, um, you know, if I'm going to be a good Christian, that means that, like, when I, I got to be on top of it all the time. I got to be, like, you know, really... You know, like, I, I just like, you know, yeah, I just trust God in the middle of all this. Like, we're saying things and like inside we're going like, oh, I don't know if I really do trust God that much. Pastors don't do that, but I know like normal individuals do. Um, and in another way, we might say, you know, um, well, I have God and you don't. Wouldn't you like to be like me with all the answers to everything? This is... That is not the way God works often. And I don't know about you, but like some of my lowest and scariest times have been some of the most fruitful times in my life in terms of opportunity to talk to people about what God has done in my life. Have you experienced that? A story from my college days. 
which by the way, if you're a college student or about to become one, I want to tell you, like in my experience, that was some of the most fruitful time for me to be able to talk to people about God and what God has done in my life. So don't miss that opportunity if you're headed that way or you're in the midst of it. But while I was in, in my freshman year in college, um, my girlfriend broke up to, with me. I know that's really hard to believe that that would have happened, but, but at the same time, one of my floor mates, uh, we called him Mobes because he was from Moberly, Missouri. Salute. Uh, he did what every broken-hearted guy does in the middle of uh, his pain after a girl breaks up with him. Um, when he gets dumped, what do you do? You join the military, right? And he joined the Navy. And um, often when you talk about God in the midst of your pain, people listen a lot more than when you're being super Christian. And so both of us, you know, our hearts were broken and you know, I would bring God into it. And at that time, I was trying to memorize a verse a day from Proverbs. And, you know, he would come down and hang out in my dorm. And if I was taking a shower, I'd like, I would say all my verses out loud. And he would, he would ask me about that. And I, I'd be able to use some of those, like, just to talk with him. And, you know, like, he went in the Navy. And in the next year, I'm walking across campus. And I hear someone say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. I'm like, who's quoting scripture on my campus? It was Mobes. And he had gone in the Navy. He was back visiting friends on campus. And when he saw me, he quoted a scripture and came up to me and said, you know, remember all those talks we had? I became a Christian in the Navy. And it's like, I never thought that guy could become a Christian, but our talks was not like, you know, hey, I'm on top of it. I was crying the blues just like him. So, Christian, if you're struggling in your marriage, if you're like, you know, you, you know, like, you don't know how to be a parent. You know, your kids are growing up and you're facing an empty nest. You don't know what to do. You just got a prognosis. You're like, you're struggling, like, what is the next step? Where am I going to live? What, you know, it's like, what's, the, what's my career? I'm thinking about doing a change. Often, in the midst of that, God will put you in contact with someone who's going through the same thing. Have you noticed that? Scary things, uncomfortable things. So if you're in that situation, don't try to be super Christian. And for sure, don't be judgy Christian. But talk to people about how you're processing what's happening in an honest and authentic way and about how God and your faith ties into that. Tell your story. Because God will use those times to open up doors. Second thing is, most of the good stuff in life begins with simple obedience to God. You guys, in the past few years, Cindy and I have become fans of hometown Anybody watch this with Ben and Aaron Napier? They remodel homes. Am I, is it just three of us? Come on, people, you got to get this. You got to watch this. Um, ben and Aaron remodel homes in Laurel, Mississippi. And uh, they are super cool. And, in, and for several years, in their bumper, is it like the show comes on, 
she says, you know, if we keep doing this, they kind of have a nice country accent, um, then, you know, when we get done, everything in Laurel will be shiny and new. And Ben says to her, everything? And then she says, well, we'll keep the good old stuff. I love that. You guys, are, are you not listening to me? What's the good old stuff? The good stuff is your family and joy and happiness and opportunity and meaning and purpose. And every once in a while, your church and your church family. When you see an angel speaks to Philip and he says, go south to the road, the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And what does Philip do? He starts out. Hmm. Why doesn't Philip ask for more detail? Why doesn't he give a few other suggestions to this great trip? And I wonder, is that my story? When God nudges me to take a step out of my comfort zone. You know, often when, when that thing happens, when that, that simple step of obedience, when that happens, um, we don't know all the implications of it. We don't know how the story ends. We're just kind of like taking the next step. That's a simple obedience. But we know that God had a divine appointment for Philip in this. And uh, without him knowing, God puts him on a road to have a conversation with someone very far away and very different. And when Philip says, uh, okay, I'll do that, Luke records, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian. Often the good stuff happens on the way, doesn't it? I'm for planning and setting goals. I'm, I'm a madman about that. But I've also found that a lot of good things happen just on the way. And it all starts with this simple obedience where the angel says, go. And Luke says, man, he started out. No big thing. We can't be afraid of the unknown, you guys. We can't be so set in our ways that God can't change us. We can't be so, get so comfortable that we won't let God nudge us a little bit out of that little space that feels so comfortable and friendly to us. And by the way, how far does Philip go to have this conversation? Geographically, if you saw it on a map, it's a long way, by foot. Remember the old commercial, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Remember that little jingle? What would you, what would you do to have one conversation with somebody about what God has done in your life? You know, that conversation doesn't happen with the Ethiopian unless Philip goes there. It begins with that simple step. And then think about this. He climbed up in the chariot with him, which that's a pretty cool scene. He's like, hey, nice wheels, bro, and gets in with him. When's the last time you got in a chariot with someone? I don't mean literally, but you, you stepped into someone else's world and had a, had a conversation. He didn't get in his face. He asked him, do you understand? And notice, too, it was an individual conversation. This isn't like Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. That's how we think about it. This is just individual conversations. And they, th those stories are the prominent stories in chapter 8. 
All that effort for one person. The spread of the gospel at this point was mainly one-on-one by lay people, not preachers. Verse 1, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea. Where are the preachers? They're home. They're still in Jerusalem. Who goes out spreading the gospel? Just people. A guy that was a deacon in the church. Nothing flashy. And these Christians go as a result of trauma in their life and out of simple obedience to God. That's where the good stuff happens. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and this is my, just my last thought, and we'll wrap up. The gospel has an accumulative effect. When the gospel is reaching people in Samaria, Luke says in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Isn't that true? Like th- so like me, I don't come from a family of faith. I became a Christian in, as a sophomore in high school. And so my story of faith began then. I have no history. But as my faith story began, it's had an accumulative effect in my family. Can you see that? Where does the faith story start in your family? Is it your mom and dad? Is it your grandparents? Maybe it started with you. Maybe it didn't start as a sophomore. Maybe it started in your 30s or something like that. It has an accumulative effect. And it builds if we continue to follow Christ. Um, and if you're not a Christian and you're here, isn't it true that you're probably here because somebody, probably a lot of somebody's, had an accumulative effect on you? You weren't thinking about church. You weren't thinking about God. And here you are sitting in church because you've had these conversations with people. And you're like, now you're in church. Like, you never did this on a Sunday morning. And you're, talking, you're thinking about faith. So that's, that's us as individuals, but as a church, Sunridge, whether you're watching online or you're sitting in this room, who do we want to be? What are we going to do with this once-in-a-lifetime thing that we get our lives? Do we want to bring joy to this city, to this valley, to wherever God sends us so that as we, as we go as God's people talking about what God has done with us in the midst of our trauma, out of simple steps of obedience, we will see God do work over the barriers that we thought could never be overcome. And it will all begin with us being willing to step out of our comfort zone um, and take that simple step of obedience where He's leading us, and that's where all the good stuff happens, you guys. Let's do that. Would you stand, and let's worship in response to that thought. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.